The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thee thanks for the gift of Holy Scripture and for the opportunity to be together in fellowship and in Christian brother and sisterhood. We ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to your Scripture and that we go forth to know and do your will. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the valedictory meeting of the Trinity Bible Study. And Steve and I have been thinking about this for a long time. And um, we call this today Romans in Summary and Context. And we wanted to summarize Romans, which is kind of the thing that we always want to do in the last meeting on a particular on a particular topic, but also maybe offer context in view of all of the things that we've talked about over the course of the years. Um, and stepping back to see the forest rather than the trees and maybe even getting way high up and looking down at the terrain, it occurred to me that they're really, it, Paul's, letter to the Romans is probably the most succinct. We call it the magnum opus for a reason. It's kind of the most unified field theory of what Christian theology really means. And it goes back to first principles. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. It doesn't just address a few issues, but the big picture. And if we take it all together and summarize all of Scripture, I suppose that there would be four big questions. The first question would be, if God exists, what is God like? Now, that's not a question that we think about very much as believers, but it is a question that we ought to think about in the context of the world. When C.S. Lewis began his radio broadcast that eventually got written up as um, Mere Christianity, he started at the beginning. He said that it was very interesting to him to listen to how people quarrel. That when they quarrel, they say things to one another like, what are you doing in my seat? I was here first. Or maybe you can't go back on your word. You promised. Or maybe to a child say, of course you should give him a slice of your orange. He gave you one of his yesterday. He said, what's interesting about the way people quarrel is it's almost like they have this innate sense of a set of ground rules, and the quarrel is really about whether the ground rules have been broken or not. And he says that this, that this set of ground rules is not just some sort of a societal construct, and if it were, we might expect that over the eons that that different cultures would have disagreed about what these fundamental questions are, but they but they don't. I mean, it may be true that over the eons, we've disagreed about how many people can be married to one another at one time, but there's never been any disagreement that it's profoundly wrong to steal another man's wife and then have him killed the way David did with Bathsheba. No, uh, n n no culture has ever considered that to be uh, honorable. And Lewis took this as evidence of the existence of God, the law of human nature. Now, in the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans, Paul addresses just this same phenomenon. He writes, 
on, in chapter 1, verse 20, ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. He's made an argument for understanding the existence of God through observing the creation. And I think that Abram must have felt this when he was called by God back in the book of Genesis. Remember, Abram lived in the most glittering civilization on the planet up to that time. And yet he heard the voice of a God he didn't know calling him to go to a place he'd never seen for a purpose that he could not even have begun to imagine. And yet he did. And I suppose the reason that he did was that there was something in his life, in all of this glitter, that was not satisfied by the glitter. As, as to, Again, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, if I find that I have in myself a yearning which nothing in this world can, can uh, satisfy, the most likely explanation is that I was made for another world. And that may very well have been what Abram felt. So if we, if we postulate from Scripture and our own observance the existence of God, we still have to ask the question about what is he like? What is his nature? Well, if you're a non-believer or a skeptic and you only read the book of Job, you might conclude that his nature is to be capricious or maybe even a little bit cruel. Or if you only read parts of Genesis and parts of Joshua, you might think that he's really bloodthirsty. But again, if you step back and you look at Genesis and Exodus and Joshua all in context, you might begin to see that he is a God who has a purpose and who is working out a plan, a plan, a purpose that he announced way back in Eden after the fall when he told Eve that her seed would bruise the head of the serpent's seed. So... If we think about God's nature from this side of the cross, we might turn back to the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, verse 18. He writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. That is to say that the nature of God is to insist upon justice, justice through perfect righteousness, and justice against those who suppress the truth. So maybe the second question that we ask as Christians is, what is the truth of what we are like? That is, if we know what God is like, what are we like? Well, modern Christianity seems to be full of all these happy thoughts about we're all the children of God, or if we just learn how, we can unleash the power of God that is within all of us. Well, that's a lot of happy talk, but Paul wrote to the Ephesians that we're not all children of God, we're all children of wrath. And he wasn't just pointing the finger at the Ephesians. He said, we all are. We're, we're all. And in that respect, to apply Paul's 
statement in the book of Romans, there's not, there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, between male or female, between slave or free. We are all children of wrath. Now, in the second chapter of Romans, he wrote something very like that. If we go to verse 12, he writes, All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. That's a reference to the Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, a reference to the Jews. So Paul understands right away that it is our nature to be sinful and rebellious, and that's just as true of the Jews who were under the covenant with God, that special covenant that was ordained and cemented through the law, it's just as true of them as it is of the Gentiles, the lesser breeds without the law. In Rudyard Kipling's famous um, line from one of his most famous poems. So, if we um, if we understand that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, that we're all under the judgment of the law. We ought to have what in, again, to get back to C.S. Lewis, we ought to have cause to be uneasy. And in fact, we do. If we're honest with ourselves, if we judge ourselves according to a perfect standard of righteousness, it's really hard to let ourselves off the hook. I mean, think about all the times that we give excuses for bad behavior. You know, uh, we... I snap at my spouse under a moment of stress, or maybe I react in an uncharitable way to some setback that's happened to me in the office, and I say some unkind things about somebody. I might say afterwards, well, you know, it was really, that wasn't really me. I was, it was a bad moment. I had, I just, I was caught unawares, and, and my guard was down. But Lewis would tell us, and not just C.S. Lewis, but certainly in a vivid way, he would tell us that maybe it's in those unguarded moments that we discover what's most true about our nature. You've heard a sermon a few years ago preached from the pulpit here that uses C.S. Lewis's famous metaphor about rats in the cellar. Anybody remember that sermon? Brian does. Thank you. Uh, rats in the cellar. If we suspect that there are rats in the cellar, the worst way to discover them is to make a lot of noise to go down the cellar. Crunch all the way down the steps and then throw on the light. Or throw on the light and then crunch all the way down the stairs. By the time we get to the cellar, the rats will be far out of sight. And if we fool ourselves into believing that the fact that we can't see them means that there are no rats there, then we deceive ourselves. What if we, if we really want to find the rats that are in the cellar, we creep downstairs quietly and we flip on the light all of a sudden and we catch them out in the open. If it's not rats in the cellar, it might be cockroaches in the kitchen. But it's the same thing. The moments that we are least able to prepare ourselves for the confrontation, for the, for the bad moment, may be the moment that we see ourselves mostly as we are. So if we're honest with ourselves, if we don't deceive ourselves, the truth is that what we are is children of wrath. 
So where does that leave us? Any thoughts so far? Any comments about that? I think there's similar situations that happen to me a lot. And I have somebody I have a grudge against. I say, I forgive them. There's, you know, I don't, that's done, it's over with. But sometimes when you wake, you can do that, you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. You can't really, you're not really in control of your thoughts. And you, if you hear of something that's happened that's bad, it's somebody that you gotta kind of have this theoretical grudge against, kind of get a little smug. I mean, yeah, that's, that's happened to me. You know, just, yes. Um, you know, and that's kind of like it's you know that I'm, that probably is more of an indication of my true nature. That's right. That's true. The Germans have a word for that. The Germans have a special word for everything. Their word is Schadenfreude, and I can't translate it directly, but Schadenfreude expresses an unseemly pleasure in the misfortune of those for whom we have ill feelings. <laughs> That's what you're talking about, right, Frank? And that's the moment you wake up at 2 in the morning and you're at your most fundamental self and you haven't had a chance to sort of dress up and, and, and comb your theological hair and be presentable. It's, it's as, we, as we really are. Well, if we are really like that and we remember that the nature of God is to seek justice through perfect righteousness, then then what's our remedy? Uh, in, in the ninth chapter of Job, when Job was disputing with his three so-called friends, and I say so-called, how can a man be righteous before God? Job says, if one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Boy, is that ever true. Job understood, and he actually said this at a later point in that book, Job understood that we need a mediator or an advocate. We recite from the book of Job in our burial order, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Well, Job knew that somewhere he had a mediator and an advocate. He was looking forward to the coming of our mediator and advocate. And that's really the answer to the third question posed in the big Christian picture. What is God's remedy for our condition? God, who represents perfect justice through righteousness, through perfect righteousness, and we, who are, who are infested with rats in our cellar, what is his remedy for that problem? Well, John told us in his prologue exactly what the remedy was that there is this light that shines in darkness, although not down at the other end of the table, unfortunately. There is a light that shines in darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it, has not put it out, has not overcome it. And that light is the Word. And the Word is the mind of God, and the Word, the mind of God became flesh. And more than that, not only did the Word become flesh, but the Word dwelt among us. It came to us. We could not, we who are infested with rats, could not even begin to meet the standard of perfect righteousness that is the nature of God. In the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul addresses this question. If you will look at separately verse 8 
and then verse 18 in chapter 5. First verse 8, Paul writes, But God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 18, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. He's comparing Christ to Adam. He's comparing the cross in Golgotha to the sin in Eden. Because of the original sin in Eden, one man, Adam, there was condemnation to everyone. But because of one man's sacrifice, Christ Jesus, there is now justification and life for everyone. Remember that justification word. That's the word that is a legal term. And it implies not just a finding of not guilty, but a finding of innocence. But we're not innocent. We are guilty. We are found, we are treated as innocent even though we are guilty. And we are treated as innocent because of the redemption, another legal term, that was bought for us on the cross. A lot of people would ask in our modern world, well, why did it require death on the cross? I mean, if God is God, if God made everything, if God made all the rules, then why couldn't God just sprinkle us with some, with some divine angel dust and say, it, it's all fine now? Well, I guess the answer to that is that it would not be consistent with the nature of God. The nature of God, which is to insist upon perfect justice and righteousness, and we don't just have the word of Paul for that. I mean, we again, we can see it in the natural world. If I stand on a bridge and drop a stone over the edge of the bridge, ten times out of ten, the stone is going to fall into the water below. I have no right to ever expect that once I let go of that stone that one time out of a million it might fly up into the clouds because the immutable law of gravity will carry that stone down to the water, to the earth. Likewise, if a free-range chicken lays an egg somewhere that the farmer can't find to sell to Frank Stitt, then that egg will hatch, and the egg will hatch into a chick. It won't be a duck, let alone a pig, piglet or a kitten. It will always, ten times out of ten, it will be a chick because the immutable law of nature ordains that what is begotten by a chicken is another chicken. So we see in all of the creation, a certain balance, a certain every action has its equal and opposite reaction that kind of puts the lie to our assumption that maybe God could just sprinkle angel dust. I mean, in the law, we have, and Mike and Mickey will recognize this image very well, the, the, uh, the classic 
classical image of the law personified was the was the scales of justice. You you know the 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 blindfolded woman holding up the scales of justice and the scales have to balance. Well, if the scales have to balance, then we understand that for perfect justice to be done, there has to be some payment. That is, the debt is owed, the charge is there, and it has to be paid. What other atonement could pay the debt for all of humanity other than the death of God himself? So what other than the cross could ever satisfy the debt once we understand it in its true nature? That's where I think folks go so badly wrong when they imply that all religions tend to teach the same thing and tend to all aim to the same place. Well, it's it's certainly true. I mean, I will concede that there are true things in lots of religions. But again, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, if we set out to do a mathematics problem, there's only one right answer. Now, that's not to say that some wrong answers are closer to right than other wrong answers, but there's only one right answer. And frankly, I think that if we, if we really are logical about it, there is a perfectly logical case that only Christianity is consistent with what we understand about ourselves and what we observe in the creation. Only Christianity offers the kind of atonement that will pay the debt that we can't pay. Krishna consciousness can't do it. This, do you think that you could live according to the seven pillars of Islam? Do you think that you could meet that standard of, of perfection? I mean, there are certain truths about all of that, but the ultimate truth is we can't do it. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, some would say that that puts God in an awfully small box. I say that that's a box that God has put himself into. And it's not so much a statement of exclusivity as it is an offer to those of us who cannot do it any other way. You can't do it. Krishna consciousness won't do it. Islam won't do it. The law won't do it. But I can do it. You can come to the Father, but, but you, you can come to the Father by me, but not by any other way. And so I think that that is the answer to the third of our questions. What was his remedy for our condition? Is to, his remedy was to become one of us and through his own sacrificial death to pay the debt that humanity could never pay for itself. So the last question, oh, before we get to the last question, any comments about, about that? Brian? I, I think what you said makes it so so very clear that, that when you hear people say, oh, well, you know, we're all worshiping the same God, that that's not true. And, and uh, there is something that, that is very different and unique uh, about Christianity. And uh, that, that you do not find in other religions. And as you say, some 
I completely agree with that. In fact, you remind me of something that I read in the news a few weeks ago. I think it was in response to the latest atrocity by the, by the people who call themselves ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State, and some Christian blogger or tweeter or whatever uh, tweeted out, you die for your God, but my God died for me. And I suppose it was a little bit uncharitable to write that um, because it maybe paints all Muslims with too broad a brush. Uh, but and in a free people, I think it's probably a a, a very healthy kind of uh, moment of defiance. But it also gets very close to I think a fundamental theological truth, which is nothing that we can do for God, to show our devotion for God, can ever come close to bringing us to Him. The only way that we can ever be close to Him is that He reaches down to us and picks us up and brings Him to us. And that's exactly what He did through Christ. And that is, getting back to Brian's point, I think that that is the unique aspect of Christianity, the unique claim made by Christianity, which no other religious faith that I can identify ever even gets close to claiming. And at least for me, it is the one that is logically most in tune with what I inherently understand about my nature and about the nature of creation. But I think what you say is, you know, all the religions that Brian talks about, religion, you know, people trying to bring God down to their level. But you're exactly right. The only one true religion is God brings up, us up to him. We can't bring him down to us. We can't reach the stars. Right. And as the Anglican bishop said to his flock, he said, it may be true that next to the murderers and adulterers, you stand on the top of the highest mountain and they are down in the deepest valley, but you can no more touch yes. the stars than they can touch the stars. But thanks be to God, he reached down to us. Okay, fourth question. Um, if we have proceeded to the point where we understand that his remedy for our condition was to offer himself as a sacrifice, then what is our response to that remedy? What is our proper response? Well, in the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul kicks it off. By writing, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That, that was the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 in chapter 8. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. William Barclay put it in a very vivid way. He was a Scotsman. I suppose it would take a Scotsman to use an example from golf. But he, he imagined, a, he compared a person trying to live according to the law as a person trying his hardest to play golf according to the book and swinging as hard as he can but hitting these, these topper tee shots and 
hooking it into the rough or slicing it into the water hazard. And uh, he, But he said that once we are transformed, once we are dead to the law, and we, and, and we then walk in the Spirit, that we hit these beautiful long drives down the center of the fairway, which is not to say that we never put it in the rough again. God knows I put it in the rough ten times a day. But walking according to the Spirit is to keep our focus on the redemption that Christ bought for us rather than trying through detailed um, ledger-keeping to keep a law that we can never keep. It's the perfect standard, as Paul wrote. It's beautiful, but I'm carnal. I'm a, I'm a slave to sin. Only by accepting the sacrifice, the atonement, and by then walking in the Spirit rather than in the law can we truly respond to the gift that he has given us. There are three vignettes from John, which I think uh, beautifully illustrate what the, the proper response is. The first one comes from the resurrection. John 20, Mary Magdalene weeping in the garden. And Jesus reveals himself to her, and then he says, but just don't keep me, don't cling to me, don't keep me to yourself. Go and tell the others. Tell the others that I am alive. And then in John 21, on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he tells Simon Peter, what is it to you what I do with anybody else? You follow me. He gives them the great commission. He says, follow me and proclaim it. But most fundamentally, the third, that, the vignette that I love the most of all is in John chapter 11 when, when, when he, he has that exchange with Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? The most fundamental question that any of us can ever be asked. Do you believe? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah who is to come into the world. That was Martha's answer. Right answer. Well done, Martha. A plus. Those are our proper responses, I think, in ourselves. What are our responses Everywhere else, well, toward the world, um, we understand, as, as, as Paul devoted several chapters to his epistle to the Romans, we understand that eventually the whole world will be reconciled to God through Christ. He most fundamentally focuses on the Jews to say that, the, that God's plan for the Jews is by no means frustrated, that the Jews will all be reconciled to God through Christ, but so will all the rest of the world. No one will come to the Father but by Christ. But, thanks be to God, because of Christ, everyone will be brought to the Father. So the Great Commission is clearly go to the whole world and preach the gospel. And toward one another, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who are already who are already members of this great family, who are very truly members uh, of the family of God, who are children of God because we have received him. He has given us the right to call ourselves the children of God. To all of us, he gives us the great commandment to love one another. 
and he worked out, as Paul explained in, the, in, the, in his final chapters of Romans, about how we don't put stumbling blocks in, in front of one another. We who are believers, we cling to the things that are most fundamental to what unites us, and those things which are not fundamental, we give one another a lot of slack. Or as John wrote to the, um, to the believers in his, in his first epistle, Agapatoi, agapamen, alilos. Those of us who have been beloved, beloved, all of us, those of us who have been loved, let us love one another at all times. And that is the, that, that is the, I think, the way that we respond to this great gift, this remedy that is the only remedy for our human condition. So, Stephen, I would like to leave you with the benediction that Paul left the church in Rome as he wrote, as he, as he ended his letter. Steve, would you like to read it? Sure. Last week when we stopped, I said we would finish up the last three. So in chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, through the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us all go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you all. Can I, can I just offer a prayer of thanksgiving for, for a long, long time? Lord, thank you for, um, just thank you for the way that this study uh, and its um, sort of humble and faithful perseverance over years has really transformed uh, this church and um instigated so much of the wonder that you are uh, working in now. And so for, for these men and for these people here and for all those who have um, come to this study throughout the years, we give you thanks. We thank you for this church and pray, God, that, um, that you would fill the void that is left um, by this study, uh, but that you would um, let us uh, uh, just thank you uh, for all that you have done in our lives. We honor uh, what you have done through John and through Steve uh, in the life of this parish and in our own lives. And we ask God that you would bless them and their families. And uh, also, Lord, we just, uh, we just pray uh, that you would continue to bless the Advent with faithful Bible study. Uh, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.